Romans 8, I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now I'll tell you this right off. The Spirit does not bear witness that all people are children of God. You've got to take the context here. We've just come out of the whole first part of Romans 8. The Spirit bears witness that those are children of God who have the Spirit, for one. And this is a Spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. This is a Spirit that leads us, verse 14, leads us to put to death sin, verse 13. This is a Spirit by which we are controlled. We walk in the Spirit. Those of us that have the Spirit. And Paul says earlier in chapter 8, if you have not the Spirit, you're a none of His. And if you don't belong to Him, and you're none of His, and you don't have the Spirit, you don't have the Spirit bearing witness that you are a child of God. That's not to say a person might not think they're a child of God. Because there are other spirits. There's a lot of people in this world that think they're children of God that are not. But I'll tell you, Romans 8.13 is a big one. If you have declared war on sin, have basically lived a life loving sin, looked to the cross and had your life so transformed that you now are at battle with sin, all sin, not just some, not selective. And you bear the marks that the Spirit of God is there. The Spirit of God leading you like that. If God is no longer distant, but He is now a Father, you find yourself crying to Him, Abba, Father. If there's an intimacy now, God isn't just far and removed and the man upstairs, He's my Father. To those, the Spirit of God bears witness. How does He bear witness? He testifies to us. Romans 5.5 5 is a good place. The Spirit, the love of God is poured into our hearts. What's the love of God? The love of God later in Romans 5 we see expressed in the cross. And what Christ did. That's the witness of the Spirit. The reality that the cross is for me. Look, if that's all true about your life, you're a child of God. And if children, then heirs. That means there's an inheritance. Heirs of God. And that makes sense, right? And typically, who are we heirs of? Our parents. We're an heir of God because He's our Father. And fellow heirs with Christ. And you know what that implies? Christ is not only my Lord, He's my what? My brother. Now here's where we're at. Provided I get the inheritance provided you see that word there? Provided we suffer with Him. In order that we also may be glorified. With Him. Literally, have you ever really thought about the word glorified? I mean, it's the idea of just swimming in glory. For... I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, if like me, if you're, if you're the same and you grew up on the King James or the New King James, you know that that says revealed in us. If you grew up on the NAS or the NIV or the ESV like we use here, to us. It's not that there's a different word in the original in the one versus the other. It's that it's translated differently depending on the translation you have. And you know why it is? Because the word itself doesn't exactly mean in, nor does it exactly mean to. It is actually the word that means toward. It's the picture of glory that is literally reaching out toward me, grabbing me, and pulling me into it. And so I actually see it. It's a glory that's revealed to me, but then it's also a glory in me because that glory just consumes me. I mean, you know that this is what Scripture teaches, right? John says, the glory of Christ is revealed to us, and when I see that glory, what happens? That glory just sucks me right in and I become part of the glory. That's what's happening here. And Paul says, look, our sufferings are not even to be compared to this. Now watch what happens here. Verse 19. Now Paul wants to take our suffering and put it in a global, or you might even say universal context. Now watch this. For the creation. He means what was created. The universe. Waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He's implying here there's a day coming when we're going to be revealed. Now look. Why does creation wait? Why is it eager? And he answers that in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Who is it that has the first fruits? The first fruits here is looking back at what he's just been talking about. First fruits of the Spirit. You have the Spirit. You have the Spirit's leading. You have the Spirit's leading to put sin to death. You have the Spirit's testimony. You have the Spirit of adoption that compels you to cry, Abba, Father. You have the Spirit. And the fruits that, that come out of that, if you're a child of God, what he's saying here is, the creation groans, but not only the creation groans, Christians groan. And why do we groan? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know why we groan? Because we suffer, right? That's, that's the connection here. He, cre he brings creation to this whole thing and He shows us creation groaning. He shows us us groaning. Clearly, He's tying this back to the suffering that He says comes before the glory. My message today is called the suffering and the glory. Now let's lay it down right here at the beginning. This morning's sermon is a hard message. There's hope in it. you got to see that. There's hope in it. But it's hard. I mean, these are brutal words in a way. One thing... Don't, are you guys like me in this sense? I hate hearing preaching or teaching when I walk away and I think, you know, I just can't even see how that fits into my life. I can't see what that has to do with me. 
one thing about Paul is the guy is practical. I mean, he's not into dry, irrelevant theology. He's practical and pastoral, and he's real. Don't you want reality in the preaching? And come on, we live lives. This book isn't just for the shelf, folks. I mean, we, we need to be able to look in here and have this thing hit us right where we're at in this life. I mean, I want somebody that's going to come to where I am and tell me the truth about why my life is the way it is, why this world is the way it is, and to, and to give me some hope in the midst of that. I guess not, not everybody wants that. Kenny and I were talking with a woman at Sutton Holmes last night. Tried to share some truth with her. She stormed off without the burger, so she must have been offended. Not everybody wants the truth. But Paul, he's here. And he wants to give it to us. I mean, folks, we need a gospel that hits us right where we are. Where we live. Now look, what Paul's doing here is he's hitting us where we live. He's being prophetic. He knows... Christian, listen to me here. Paul knows that right now there is a crisis coming down the pike toward you that will tempt you to quit the Christian life. Things that will tempt you to think that God doesn't love you and doesn't care. They're coming. Look, child of God, you will suffer. You must suffer with Christ. And you will not have an inheritance if you run from the suffering. Christian, there is suffering in your future. If it's not already on your plate already. We have a young church. Definitely not beyond suffering. But we're young. We tend to be healthy. But I'll tell you this. How likely it is that as we age, as the years go by, our sufferings are going to be greatly multiplied. And Paul sets himself to prepare you you that sit there right now, He's speaking to you. This isn't just some preaching to go over your head. Something for you to miss. He's speaking to you. You know what He's doing here? He's preparing you for the day that crisis comes. And it's coming. You, Every one of you in this room are going to get so sick or you are going to have such a tragic accident that you are going to die. And before that, you are going to suffer things. You are going to suffer losses. You are going to suffer the death of loved ones. Look, every married couple in here, unless you're in a tragic accident together, one of you is going to lose the spouse and go on to live with that. We are headed for things, folks. I remember my grandmother crying when my Aunt Barb died. And she said a mother should not have to see the death of her daughter. But I'll tell you what, some of you are going to see that. Some of you are going to be hit by such despair and by such crisis. And what Paul is equipping us to do is preparing us that when it does come, you won't say, I give up. I can't do this anymore. I'm out of here. He's preparing us. Kenny and I were walking the other night, walking and praying and talking about where the church has come in seven years. What we've seen. And then we, we, what it led to was us contemplating what, you know, what might the next seven or eight years bring? What might they bring? We were thinking of, you know, what people might be saved, what missionaries might be sent, what gospel advances there might be, what changes. But I'll tell you what, in all this, I could not help thinking about what suffering is likely to occur among us. What death, what tragedy, what loss, what disappointments, what persecution, what temptations. What one of you brothers or sisters 
going to defect and walk away in the next seven years? Which one of us is going to lose a child soon? Either to death or to the darkness of this world. And it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. My sister can hold her child in her arms and hold her close. But death is going to tear that child out of some of our arms. And sickness and calamity and fire and that phone call, you know it's coming. I can remember the phone call came. Son, I've got cancer. The phone call came. Tim, your grandpa's dead. The phone call's coming, folks. The phone is going to ring. There's unknown trials and tribulations in the next seven years, eight years of this church. And they're coming. Maybe some of this causes you to think, why is he being so negative? I don't like to think about these things. But hear me. That's not even the question right now. I'm not asking you whether or not you like to think about these. Paul's putting them out there. He's the one talking suffering, not me. I mean, I am, but it's because he is. And it's because I want to be biblical. And I want to draw on his words here. Paul is forcing us to think about these things. He lays it out. Romans 8.18 you see, folks, when the suffering comes, Paul wants us to be able to say what he says. Romans 8.18 This is what you need to be able to say when the despair is bringing you down and it's crushing you. You need to be able to say this with Paul. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. When the doctor says it's cancer, you get that 2 a.m. phone call. There's been a tragic accident. I'll tell you this. This verse cannot just be some trivial head knowledge. You've got to know this right here. You've got to feel it. You've got to be convinced of it. Or you will not hold up in that day. And we've all got that day ahead of us. Oh, I can remember Brainerd and Judson as they died they said dying is altogether another thing than they ever imagined. The pain of it. The suffering of it. They just pleaded at those times, Lord, don't let me disgrace You in the midst of this. The pain was so horrible. Oh, young people. Health has you in the prime of life. Like I say, we're young. But all oh, these things are there and even in our youth they're coming and they may be here sooner than we think. When Satan screams and the temptations rage and people hurt you, you must feel this right down in the depths of your soul. This has to be a rock for you to stand on. You've got to be able to see past those sufferings to the glory and realize this is so hard, Lord. I can't hardly bear up under this. But I can see past it. There is a glory coming. And it is not even worthy to be compared to this. It pounds you with grief and swallows you up. And that temptation's going to come. It's going to come. It's going to make you question how in the world can God treat His children this way? It will not carry the day if Romans 8.18 is just some dry abstract theory that you carelessly pass over when you read through this part of your Bibles, 
Paul is equipping true believers so they won't say, I'm done. I'm through. If this is how God treats His children, I'm going to Islam. And look, I'm not venturing way out in left field when I say this. There's a parable of the soils, folks. And when difficulty comes, a bunch of them head out. This paragraph is here so that true Christians will not think that way when the suffering comes. The hour is coming and Paul prepares us for it. To suffer, to suffer really badly, and to suffer even unto death, and to do so and not quit. And he assures us he does this by assuring us that it is worthwhile. It is immensely worthwhile. So, that's what I want to look at. Suffering, then we'll consider the glory. One, suffering is Christian. That may surprise some of you. Suffering is Christian. Now don't misunderstand me. That's not to say that if you suffer, that's proof you're a Christian. That's not to say that unbelievers don't suffer. Certainly they do. When I say suffering is Christian, I mean this. Christian, you receive suffering by promise. Romans 8.17 If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, what? Provided we suffer. God's guaranteeing you. Child of God, you will suffer with Him. With Christ. Christ suffered. Christ learned obedience in what He suffered. Christ went through suffering on His way to the joy set before Him. You've got to follow the same path. He said, you follow me, you pick up that cross, you deny yourself. He was calling you to die. He was calling you to die to yourself. He was calling you to die to the enjoyments. He was calling you to die to a comfortable life. And He guarantees you there's suffering. Christian, the lost, unbelieving world, if you're lost here today, you have no promise of suffering. None. Look, lost, unbelieving world, no promise of it. There are pleasures in sin, the, the Bible tells us. Some of you are eating up as much of those pleasures as you can sink your teeth into. It's pleasurable. My life, by and large, as a lost person, I know there's difficulties with the transgressor, life of the transgressor. But there's pleasures in sin. My life, for the most part, the first 25 years of my life was fun. You know what? The psalmist realized this. Psalm 73. You know what he says? I looked at the lost man and I was envious. This is what he says. I was envious. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains in their death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble. They're not stricken. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. If you're here today and Christ isn't all your trust, then you have no promise of pain and suffering and sorrow in this life like Christians do. And you know what? You may be happy about that. But I warn you. I warn you, you do have a promise that when it's all over and the measure of your sins has filled up to the top, death will seize you and you have the promise you will have hell to pay. But Christian, you do have a promise. There's no escape for you. Not in this life. You're going to hurt. You're going to cry. You're going to groan. 
pangs of distress will seize you while you're in this world. But brethren, don't run from suffering. Paul says this, Philippians 1.29, it has been granted. Granted! Granted! It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in Him, Not only, Paul, what else is there? But also, suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you, Christian, to suffer for His... You know what? I pulled up the lexicon on my computer and I crossed my cursor over this Greek word, granted. And do you know what definition came up out of the lexicon? You might be surprised. You say, well, maybe it said granted. (laughs) Isn't that what the word... You know what it said? It said, this means to deal generously and graciously and pleasantly and agreeably with someone. That's what the word granted means. If you've been granted to suffer, it means God is being generous and gracious and pleasant and agreeable to you. What, Paul? Are you insane? How can you talk about suffering that way? But oh, child of God. What happens when life is all as it should be? I'll tell you what happens. God fades. When it's all going well, When everything is just right, all the winds are favorable in our life, how God diminishes. We don't need Him. No urgency. Give Paul the thorn in the flesh and what's he doing? He's on his knees. Lord, help me. Deliver me from this. Look, it's not just the wicked in this world that forget God. It's the comfortable Christian too. The psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I did what? I went astray. You want to go astray from God? Astray from His Word? Astray from His person? Astray from His ways? Just stay on that easy path too long. Affliction has a way of Pulling us out in prayer. Lord, I need You. I need help here. I need You to sustain me. I need grace. I need to know what to do. I need answers. I need help, Lord. I got this thorn. I got this thing. I got this affliction. It wakes us up. That's what it does. It brings us to where we see things as we ought to see them. Romans 5, it says that suffering produces endurance and character and hope. How God diminishes when life is easy. We get soft, we get worldly, we get careless when it's all smooth sailing. You know what, folks? Not only do I say that suffering is Christian because it's promised, but it's promised to a certain degree that is above the average. There is a quantity of suffering that is guaranteed to you as a Christian. Paul, and of all times, Paul says this right after he's been stoned. Paul says in Acts 14 to the churches at Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, Through, does he say through tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God? That's not what he says. Through many or much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. We not only will suffer, we must suffer, but we must suffer much. And listen, 
hear what it said? Through many tribulations. Not around them. Not over them. Not under them. We don't skirt them. We got to go through them. Brethren, this may be hard for some of us to swallow. Especially when we have this idea that Christianity immediately brings heaven on earth. Look, through this whole portion of Romans 8, you are told that if you would have this inheritance and you would have this glory, it says, provided you suffer with Him. In verse 18, it says that this suffering is not worthy to be compared to this glory. Do you know one thing Paul never says? He never says it's going to be eliminated. He never says that, well, it, this suffering is so severe that, that it just can't possibly continue like this. He doesn't say that there will be some relief before long. The truth is, there's not a word here about your suffering in this life diminishing. He doesn't say that. He just says in comparison with the glory, it is not to be compared. There's no promise here that becoming a Christian will reduce your suffering. In fact, you know what? There's a promise in the Scriptures that it will increase it. You know why? Because those who will strive to live godly in Jesus Christ are going to have another problem besides all the other problems. They're going to face persecution. You're going to suffer for being a Christian. All becoming a Christian does is compound your problems in this life as far as your suffering is concerned. And you know what? This can be so hard for us to understand. You know why it is? You know why it's so difficult? Because we live right now in a world that we are not isolated from. We are influenced more than we know. And you know what it's thinking is? We got this immediate gratification mindset, do we not? We want it now. We want everything now. We want to be happy now. We want to be comfortable now. That's why we got credit cards, folks. We run out and buy what we don't have money for because we need it now. You look at your credit card statement. Big balances there don't equal up to people walking the Christian life who are willing to suffer now. It's a picture of people who want gratification now. We not only live with that, we live in a retirement-minded generation. Got to have protection. Got to have security. Got to free myself from all the suffering that's coming at the end of life. Got to protect myself. Got to have insurance. Got to have retirement. Oh, folks, and you couple that. Health, wealth, prosperity. That's what's being touted today in religion. That's what's out there. That doesn't really square well with Paul's words through much tribulation. It's, and, but, oh, we are so much a product of it more than we know. It taints us. It's there with us. And then you know what you have on top of all that? You have this entitlement mindset today. Oh, we see it in politics. You're all entitled to health insurance. We hear that. Entitlement. Charles and Stormy and I visited with a woman. She needed 800 and some dollars for her rent. I just asked her, would you go to Fatty's and clean the bathrooms? Offended! I should have that money without working! Entitlement mindset. But you see, we're like that. We feel entitled. We feel entitled as Americans. We should have so much comfort, so much amusement, so much prosperity. Entitlement. I should have a house. I should have this. I should have this. And you know what God entitles you to in this life? 
much tribulation. And we get so shocked when the tribulation comes. We look at God. He's harsh. He's mean. Why is He doing this to me? Because you're thinking more like the world than you're thinking like Paul here in Romans 8. And so we get confused. We get bent out of shape. We get our feelings hurt. Our Father's mistreating us. Why is He doing this? I should be entitled as a child of God. And how can He do this? I'm His child. He taught me to cry, I'm a Father. To come along and lay me low for. And I thought Christianity was supposed to bring good things. Lighten the load. Make it easier. Folks, look there at verse 23. We who have the first fruits, the Christians of the Spirit grown inwardly, this is the groan of our suffering. But I want you to see something here. We're not the only ones groaning. Who else is groaning? Verse 22. Who else is groaning? The creation. Been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul doesn't leave our suffering and groaning in a vacuum. You know what he does? He ties it up and wraps it around a worldview of groaning. But look, notice why it's groaning. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. There's a cosmic frustration in vanity. It was created for man to be ruled by man. That God might be marveled at in it and worshipped in it for His handiwork. And what do the heavens do? They declare His glory. And yet, in all that, there is a futility. It was created with life and with vigor and with glory But verse 21 says that it is now in bondage to decay. The creation will be set free from its bondage to decay, but presently it isn't so. You guys see that there? The creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. But right now, corruption, decay, Spoilage, rot, they fester all around us. Contaminate everything. So Christian, when suffering comes, don't ever think, oh, woe is me. Why does everything bad happen just to me? Paul assures us this isn't the case at all. You see how in verse 20, it says that creation was subjected to futility? Past tense. There was a time when this creation, this universe, was not futile and in bondage to decay and groaning. But then it was subjected to this. Then in verse 21 it says, the creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. Why do I emphasize that? It was subjected to this futility, to this decay, and to this groaning. It will be set free. There's your timeline. But where are we in that timeline? We're right in the middle. We live right there. We're living in a period of time after all the corruption started, but also before it will cease. Our suffering is woven into the very fabric of the world we live in. And your bodies are... If you're a Christian, you've been given a new heart. A spirit has been put within you. Spiritually, you are made alive. But our bodies are woven into this fabric of corruption. It's there. You can't get out of it. You're in the timeline, folks. Freddie can't see anymore. And I can't see him. He does a fuzzy thing back there. Why? I mean, folks, we're in this. Brother, where's your hair? And we're in this thing. Mine's going too, just a little slower. But the corruption, the decay, 
We're in it. And here's the thing. There will be sickness. There will be destruction. There will be storms. There will be calamities, accidents, cancer, heart attacks. There's going to be birth defects and drought and pain and marital conflict, child troubles, money troubles, stock market crashes, job issues, fires, cars breaking. And then after all that, there's death. Why? I'll tell you this. You are no sideliner in the deal. And so when it comes on you, what we're not supposed to think is God singling me out here. We're in the midst of this. And what? look at this. Moreover, on top of all this, what I'm saying to you is, look how much effort we spend trying to protect ourselves from the inevitable motions of a fallen universe. But let's move on. Look at Romans 8.20. There's something else here. The creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. But why? It is not groaning willingly, but because someone stepped into the picture here and subjected it to futility. Do you see that? Paul is saying that futility came upon this creation because someone subjected it to futility. It didn't happen naturally. It didn't happen by accident. God did it. The bondage to corruption was God's doing. Storms that wreck houses and kill people, that's His doing. He subjects it to futility. He holds it in bondage to decay and corruption. He holds it right where it groans. He holds us right where we groan. The groaning and decay of calamity, earthquake, death, destruction, pestilence, drought. It's all His doing. Freddie and I just earlier this year, we went over Mississippi. Help repair homes and build new homes for people that lost them in the Hurricane Katrina. Some of the folks that we went with from other churches, they made a DVD. I was watching it the other day. President Bush, in the beginning of that, they have a, a little segment of one of the, his speeches he made right after the storm. He called Hurricane Katrina a cruel, wasteful storm. He said people were looking for meaning in a tragedy that seems so blind and random. Cruel, wasteful, Blind? Random? You know what? He wasn't speaking from a biblical worldview. He was not reading Romans 8, was he? You know what happens today? Man does everything to try to clear God of the responsibility of disaster. He sits down with his paper. He sees, ah, there's an earthquake there. There's wars over there. There's this over here. There's drought and famine there. Many are dying from this plague here. There's HIV running rampant in over here. And, and wow, drought's killing many. And children are dying here. And this is happening. And you know what they say? They say, why would God allow such things? And then you know what the next step is? Well, God is so loving that He certainly wouldn't allow such things. And so, their conclusion is, He must be impotent. He must not be able to change it. Because surely a loving God, if He could keep all these things from happening, would not let them happen. Oh, how we have missed it. You know what you should think when you see these disasters? Let me tell you this. This is a judicial proclamation. This is a penal exaction because man has sinned against an infinitely holy God. You remember this. It was God Almighty in that day that said, this ground is cursed. He cursed it. You know why? When you see the Hurricane Katrina... 
You should not think meaningless. There is great meaning there. You know what the meaning is meant to do? It's meant to show you that your sin is so infinitely wicked and heinous. It is to show you that sin is monstrously, monstrously heinous and foul. Listen, when the cancer comes, the storm destroys, the baby snatched by death, people are so amazingly willing to remove God from that suffering. Many today, Brother Charles is talking about open theism he's been reading about. The people look at this and they say, God must be just as surprised by all of it as we are. Don't you believe that? Don't you believe that? Maybe someone here says, that offends me. I don't want a God like that. Let me tell you what all this speaks to us. God looks at you viewing all this decay. And He says, learn this. Your sin offends Me. The meaning of all this misery is that our sin is unspeakably horrific. And if you miss that, if you miss that in this futility and decay and corruption and death and suffering, then you have missed this judicial decree of God. This curse. Our sin is ghastly. It is repulsive. We should see it as shocking, as appalling. You know why? When the trial comes, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to look at this and you're going to say, God must not be able to do anything about it. Or you're going to look at this and you're going to say, this is overreaction. I mean, what in the world? He only took a bite out of a piece of fruit. You'll think it is overreaction if you don't see sin for how wicked it is. Your sin is violently wicked. What you see in drought and fires, wildfires, and tornadoes and hurricanes, just a little glimpse of how God feels towards sin and how you ought to see it. Not too long ago, we had a man, some of you know him, some of you know him real well. He came in here, came into the church. He said to me one day, you know, since I've been coming to this church, my wife took me back in. I got a job. Not doing drugs out on the corner anymore. Got a car. Imagine a man coming up to you and saying that. Oh, how easy it is to find God in that. Right? That kind of testimony makes Christianity real sellable. But when your spouse dies, when the marriage fails, when your savings are gone, you owe the mortgage, when your leg doesn't work right anymore, your back's failing. Let me tell you something. In the midst of all that, I'll tell you what makes Christianity sellable. It just begs that we jump down to verse 28. Those who love God are going to find something to be real in their lives. All things work together for good. 
And that brings us to the glory of the whole thing. Though all the suffering and shame of this fallen universe revolve around sin, yes, it's a judicial punishment against that sin. Our suffering as a Christian is not penal. It isn't. Christ suffered and died the penalty. So this suffering is no longer penal. It's no longer punishment. It's not judicial. It works out for good for us every single time. Every time. Do you see verse 22? Do you see that these pains are not said to be death pains? What are they? Birth pains. I can remember my wife when she was giving birth to Joy. Joy was stuck in the birth canal and not coming out. The matter was critical. The midwife had me grab Ruby under the arms and literally hold her up vertically. There was danger. I'll tell you this. If you're standing at the door of that bedroom listening and you hear Ruby's groans and sighs and cries, it makes a huge difference whether in a few minutes a baby's going to come forth or whether Ruby's going to be laying there dead on the bed. And how you hear those groans makes all the difference in the world. These are birth pains, folks. There's glory coming. There's glorification. It's just out there on the horizons. The revealing. You see that in verse 19? The revealing of the sons. What is that? What is that? It's our glorification that you see right there at the end of verse 17. You know what, folks? We have to set our categories right. When the suffering comes, the way to think is this. Suffering isn't God turning on you. Not if you're a Christian. This is God birthing you into glory. And how you see it makes all the difference. There's design here. There is purpose here. We must never forget that. When the tribulation is almost more than you can stand, this truth will sustain you in the whelming flood. You're going to die. You're going to get really sick. You're going to have a fatal accident. You will know pain and loss and trials and tears. But there is design here. These are the birth pains of glory. If you are a child of God, folks, glory will just literally pulsate through our bodies. I mean, you think about Jesus Christ trying to find terminology to describe the glory you, Son of God, will have when you receive that inheritance, when you come to see Jesus Christ face to face. The only thing in this world that He finds that He can liken that glory to is what? The sun. The brightest. Most brilliant. Most glorious light in all this world is the only thing that He finds suitable to even come close to describing the glory that you will have. Look, the sons of God are going to be revealed. They don't know us today. Brother Freddy comes walking down the street. They're saying, that's nothing special, folks. I mean, look at the guy. Getting old, getting fat. Freddie expects me to pick on him. But in that day, there's going to be glory such as will blind us if we could see it now. I mean, we're going to be revealed. He's not revealed today. I'm not either. We're not revealed yet. People look at us and they say, no big deal. By our looks, by our circumstances, nobody can really... You cruise through H-E-B, nobody's saying... Wow, there's the son of the king. Because there's nothing really stepping out. But look, in that day, we're going to be revealed. 
Don't be worried. Don't be troubled if the world doesn't recognize you. Don't be troubled if the world thinks you're a fool. Just consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is in store for you. I just say this real quick in the end. I know some of you are sitting here, you're lost right now. It may be, hey, you've been taught all about evolution. You know what evolution says? Everything is getting better. You know, it's all improving. It's developing. It's advancing. Got slime in the puddle and the lightning hits it. Now it comes a fish and swims around in the water. That gets a little better. Comes out of the ocean, walks on all four on the land. Gets a little better up on two. Before you know it, things thinking. You got man, we're moving up. We're doing better. But the apostles' teaching is the exact opposite of this theory. He says, futility, decay, corruption, groaning. And I just appeal to you here. Let your own eyes tell you. Let your own eyes tell you. After 10, 20, 30, 50 years, your body getting better? I mean... Walk around the lonely streets of the east side at night. Let me show you how man's getting better. Ladies, you want to walk around there alone at night? See how better man is getting? Paul presents us with a worldview of futility. Look around you. Look at the headlines. Is the world getting better? Go buy a brand new lawnmower, brand new bike, put it in the backyard, exposed, and watch it get better. Watch it evolve. That push mower, watch it evolve into a riding lawnmower. Right, Freddie? Change, we sing this, change and decay in all around I see. You know what? I'll go beyond this. I know this. The Bible says that God has put eternity in man's heart. I know that even if you're here lost today, deep down inside each of you, there is a longing, there is a gnawing emptiness when it comes to this world. You know why? Because everything in this world dies. It doesn't last. It's futile. It's temporary. It's passing away. Time's coming, you will groan, you will sorrow, you will suffer, you will eventually get sick. The children of God have unspeakable glories ahead of them. Can I tell you this? The Christian has great comfort in what's laying out there after the suffering. The Bible has no comfort whatsoever to give people who are not Christians. None at all. In fact, just the opposite. It promises unspeakable horrors to you. The Bible has nothing to say to people like you except to warn you to flee from the wrath to come. Your sufferings here are not to be compared to the sufferings that await you. All the calamities and groanings of this earth are but a dim picture of the suffering that is going to come to those who disobey the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no comfort here for the unbeliever. None at all. But if you are not a child of God, you don't need to remain outside the family. John 1.12 says, To all those who did receive Jesus Christ, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. I don't have a list of ten things you must do to get this glory. God offers you sonship and the glory of sonship for free. Receive Christ. Believe in His name. Let everything else go and receive Him. Listen to me. If you want Christ and forgiveness and glory, My Master never said He will fix it 
so that you live a happy, problem-free life in this world. If you become a Christian, there's going to be more that's going to be thrown on your plate. There's no promise here in Romans 8. You've seen that of deliverance from the groaning and decay and futility in life. You are to receive Him. Not because you are poor or have cancer or are lonely, but because in your present sinful state, you are under the wrath of God. The main thrust of our Gospel that we preach to you deals with eternity. Your eternity. And you will not have the inheritance that is offered to the child of God in eternity if you run away from this suffering. There will be suffering. But you suffer with Christ. He's walked the path that makes Him a suitable high priest. And you suffer with Him in this sense. You're never alone. He's always there with you. He always gives you the grace to walk through it. Yes, there's suffering, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Amen. You're dismissed.